Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. Welcome, everybody. This is David Warren, uh, chairperson and one of the founders of Bridgeford Trust Company. Welcome to another edition of our podcast series, uh, which we're proud to to say has become uh, pretty widely listened to. And uh, we're really excited about the the guests that we've been able to interview over the last uh, year and a half or so. And uh, naturally, today is no exception. I've been excited about interviewing uh, Joe Kelly. Uh, I mean, Joe Kelly, Joe Kellogg. I'm so excited about it, Joe. I forgot your name. Uh, but Joseph Kellogg is somebody that I have known for a long time. Um, I was introduced to him at Heckerling, you know, the, the World Series of our uh, of our industry many years ago. He was manning the step booth, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And I was told I had to meet this guy, Joe Kellogg, and I was all excited because I thought he was going to give me a box of cornflakes or something. But I, I realized it was a different Kellogg. Ouch. Yeah, I know. I know. You probably get that joke a lot. Uh, but no, Joe has, has become a very good friend of mine, a very good friend of Bridgeford's, and uh, and has been in many ways a, a mentor and kind of guiding us, and particularly with regard to the international space and, and, and Bridgeford's commitment there. And, and Joe is really interesting because he was an international practitioner um, before it was cool and sexy to be an international practitioner. Um, you know, in the last three, four or five, maybe six years, you know, everybody's an international expert. Um, but Joe actually really is and was one long before everybody jumped into the space. So Joe got his uh, Jewish doctorate from American University, uh, LM from University of uh, from UM, and uh, has also a CFP. But he hails from... Um, from a, a place uh, that is very different than Miami, which is Omaha, Nebraska. And I, I don't know, Joe, I mean, did you and Warren Buffett hang out a lot when you were growing up or, or did you not run in the same circles? <laughs> I used to uh, like to go to the, what's the name of the steakhouse that he, he liked to go to? Uh, no, I did not hang out with Warren. Uh, when the board was in town, uh, a lot of times they would come down to the old market and yeah. uh, got to wait tables uh, serving them. But uh uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to meet Warren, but I do appreciate what he's done for the the city. Absolutely. Well, if we have the opportunity to meet him and make him a client, that would be great. Joe is also a Spanish speaker. Uh, he picked up Spanish as, as he traveled the world in various positions doing international work with large companies. So, uh, hola, Joe. Um, it's about all I know right now in Spanish still after having lived in Miami over <laughs> almost two years. Um, but really interesting, too, I have to mention, and, and I'd like Joe to talk a little bit about this, is, you know, um, he came to Miami to open the office for Amicorp, which um, most of you know is is an is a international trust service and fiduciary services company, and, and really grew that office and, and put it on the map there. Um, and then went on ultimately to where he is now called We Family Office, which, which Joe will talk about. Um, but really, in addition to how impressive it was that he started this, this presence from scratch for, for Amicor, but he also was a founding member of Step Miami uh, and was the chair of Step Miami and also was the, was the, the vice chair of Step USA. And so you know, Joe's leadership there with an organization called Step, and, and for those of you who don't know what that is, Joe will define that a little bit later, um, is really impressive. And, and really, I, I joke about how I met him, but it was in that capacity. People said, I needed to know Joe. I needed to understand Step. And, and Joe gave us some really good advice to become involved in Step. And since, I've had the uh, the pleasure of being able to be on some panels with Joe. And, and we've talked about some really, really important 
aspects of international work. Um, but Joe, you know, to get things started, um, again, thank you for being here. Uh, and thank you for being such a good supporter and, and really, uh, as I said, friend. And I refer to you as a big brother at times because you've got me out of, you've, you've guided me out of, out of some trouble. Um, and, and this is one of the first areas where I, I guess I sparked a little controversy. And it was before I think it was kind of accepted, but back right around when CRS became an issue, you know, I, I was interested in big ideas, and one of them was how the United States kind of became the jurisdiction of choice, um, not just because of CRS, but for other reasons, of course. And, you know, people were referring to the United States as a tax haven and a privacy haven, and, and those are words we have to be careful with, of course. Um, but, Joe, you know, being in the international space, having a training as an attorney all these years, it, talk to me about your, you know, this evolution of your industry and how the United States sort of became the place to go by and large. And, and did that, and first of all, did that surprise you given, given your background? Uh, well, first uh, I just want to take a moment to thank you, David, for inviting me to speak uh, with you today. Um, I have greatly enjoyed watching uh, uh, Bridgeford, you and Bridgeford developing uh, the fiduciary services uh, for your company, for the state of South Dakota and for the United States. Uh, it's been great to uh, to watch your progress. Um, and uh, just a, a little background. You had mentioned uh, some of my, my, my background. I, I do have, I was trained as a lawyer, but I have never practiced, actually. Um, I uh, went from law school to, in a postgraduate course in Mexico, to um, uh, working for a fiduciary service company uh, with, uh, it was called uh, Sitco uh, in the, moved me down to uh, Curacao, to British Virgin Islands. And, uh, and then I worked with this other fiduciary service company, uh, opening up the office here in Miami. You mentioned Amicorp. Um, and then I went and worked for private banks like UBS, HSBC, before I finally ended up working here for We Family Offices. So never in a law firm, right? I've, I've uh, always been more in an advisory role and somehow ended up uh, working in this international private client space uh, using structures that are not common in the usual practice of U.S. attorneys, uh, using trusts in places like uh, the Channel Islands and the Caribbean rather than places like uh, South Dakota or Nebraska. Um, and, uh, and it's been a very interesting practice, and I really love it. Uh, and perhaps one reason why... Uh, I really like watching the development of Bridgeford and South Dakota is uh, the, the, the fact that we do have world-class uh, trust laws and, and service providers that, that we can offer to the world. You know, that this is actually a, uh, a world-class service that we can, we can bring out there as long as we have sophisticated businesses and people that recognize the the potential and the market and know how to treat uh, these types of uh, of clients. So uh, one reason I've been a big, big fan is because uh, I really uh, believe in you know the ability of our domestic professional community to provide these services on a global scale. Well, thanks for saying that, Joe. Well, well, talk to me about that point, though. I mean, probably in the early part of your career, though, you, you didn't really need a lot of domestic, uh, or maybe you did, but it, the focus wasn't so much on U.S. domestic solutions, right? I mean, I when I was in law school and young lawyer, you know, where people went for sophisticated planning was and 
privacy and asset protection was the Cooks Island or Bahamas. And talk about that evolution in your practice. Um, so when I first began working in um, these fiduciary service areas, uh, it was right at the time when uh, the some of the jurisdictions, and I speak Spanish, so I'm working a lot with Latin American families, uh, Mexico in particular started uh, with some anti-deferral laws. They implemented some new laws uh, that had some anti-deferral provisions. If your foreign investment structure uh, was established in a jurisdiction that was on a list of, uh, of, I don't know if you want to say bad or jurisdictions that you know were uh, financial centers or tax havens, and so naturally some of the uh, you know people still don't want to pay taxes uh, before they have to. You know they they'd like to defer if possible, so they naturally started looking at jurisdictions that were not on the blacklist. And one of the jurisdictions not on the blacklist was the United States. So early on in, in my career, there was uh, a motivation to start setting up trusts, uh, not really companies, but more the, the succession planning trusts in jurisdictions like Delaware was one of the, the first ones um, that, uh, you know, uh, was, uh, had good uh, laws in place and was not on the list. Um, and the service providers were, were open to it. They, it wasn't embraced, you know, wholeheartedly at the beginning. Uh, they called it a hybrid solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but early on we began seeing, uh, a motivation for working with these jurisdictions. And it was more, uh, in order to continue having deferral of income taxes, uh, until, you know, uh, there was distributions or at a time, uh, uh, later on, which we still do today, right? We're always looking for ways to, uh, defer taxes, uh, whenever it's possible legally. Sure. Well, that's the key. It's legally. And that's interesting, Joe. I didn't realize it had gone that far back. I mean, of course the, the groundbreaking, I guess, aspect in international space was this, this common reporting standard, which, you know, clearly drove a lot of interest. And I, I always, frankly, sort of presumed that that was sort of the, the watershed moment when suddenly the, the light bulb went off and said, aha, maybe 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 the U.S. is where we should be. But you're saying it was lo- long before CRS. Yes, it was. It was when the uh, those blacklists started coming out, starting with Mexico. Mm-hmm. And also the IRS made it really easy to determine when a trust uh, was taxable in the United States or not. Right. The the foreign tax rules. And maybe you can help me with this one, David. But was that late '90s, 1998? I, I, I apologize; I, I don't recall exactly. But they made it very clear that if a trust is uh, a foreign trust, then there's no U.S. tax obligations. And they made it, you know, either it's a U.S. trust, taxpaying trust, as long as it passes the court test and the control test. And if it doesn't pass both of those tests, it's a foreign trust. So it was very clear you could set up these foreign trusts in places like Delaware or South Dakota or or whatever, um, uh, as long as you flunked one of those two tests. Yeah. Which, which I think to me is maybe even probably more important in CRS is, is that, I mean, uh, you know, that the idea of being able to have your cake and sort of eat it too, or you can avoid us taxation, but still get us asset protection and privacy is, I could tell you, as you know, is a huge driver for continues to be a huge driver for Bridgeford. 
Well, I mean, so as you were going through, well, t- talk to me about the impact of CRS. I mean, I know, you know, it's, it's, a, it's still a little bit of a delicate topic and companies like Bridgeford and we certainly never sell CRS avoidance uh, uh, the schemes. That's not at all what we're about. Um, so it's a, a, an important point to make for everybody listening. Um, but when that happened, Joe, first of all, did you anticipate CRS as a concept coming? And then when it did, t- talk to me about the impact on your on, on how you operate. Well, CRS, the Common Reporting Standard, right? That's the the uh, system designed by the OECD, uh, a protocol by which uh, countries can share financial information. That actually was not the first system that was put out there on a global scale. The first system was FATCA, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. When in what was it two thousand and nine, uh, the United States found out. Uh, about uh, a lot of United States people with uh, assets uh, outside of the United States undeclared, uh, they passed the, um, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of the law. Maybe you can help me with that one, David. Um, but uh, they, they came out with the, uh, the law, FATCA, which was a system by which uh, all financial institutions were obligated to report whether or not there were any U.S. persons behind any of the structures. Uh, and if they didn't do those reports, then there was substantial penalties on uh, doing any kind of business with U.S. assets or U.S. dollars and mm-hmm. touching the correspondent banking services. So the United States, with its tremendous reach uh, through all aspects of the global financial system, was able to implement a system of um, fiscal information cooperation called FATCA. Um, And the rest of the world saw that system and they said, hey, this is great. Why don't we set up our own system by which we can uh, share information? And that's where CRS came from. Uh, But it was actually the U.S. system that uh, was the the leader uh, in in that that effort to share uh, financial information. And since then- That's a great point. It's a very good point, yep. I'm sorry, Ged. No, I just it, so it took off from there, uh, and did I? You asked if I foresaw uh, this kind of sharing happening. I think definitely uh, in the age of information. I I still believe anything going on now. Uh, we have to expect that it's going to be uh, uh, there. There's a permanent record of, you know, anything that we're doing now for business or financial or whatever. So was it foreseeable that this would happen? Definitely. I think FATCA and CRS sped things up quite a bit. Um, And I think that we still have to develop uh, related laws and regulations to protect uh, privacy uh, issues, because perhaps the the ball has swung a little bit too far with... uh, the sharing and disclosure of information, especially uh, the uh, uh, with public registers of of, uh, of assets and income and stuff like that, that perhaps that is a bit uh, more aggressive. Uh, it doesn't line up with some of the data protection rules that currently exist for other aspects of personal information. Yeah. Your family, you know, mm-hmm. who you, family identities, your personal choices. You know, what you like to search for on Google, for example, seems to be information that is more protected 
than your assets and income, which in my mind doesn't line up. I mean, there should be some consistency between what information should be considered private and secure and uh, other information, which perhaps is public or is accessible by uh, parties like government or, or even companies that have protocols in place to protect the information uh, so that it doesn't get uh, stolen and uh, uh, used for nefarious purposes. And Joe, I love that you said that. And, and I, that's a big part of what I wanted to talk to you about today because, you know, I, a couple weeks last week in Pennsylvania, I created a new presentation and, and the title was, you know, asset protection and privacy in a transparent world. And I asked the same question at, at some point, are we, are we going too far? I mean, naturally, we want to protect the world from nefarious actors, and none of us, particularly we in Bridgeford, want to be involved with the, those people. But you know, I, I'm more and more coming to the conclusion that basic privacy is right. You know, that all of us have around the world, and you, you wonder at what point are we going a bit too far, and what point does it become dangerous to families in Latin America when the information becomes part of the public registry somehow, and, and, then, and then there's some real, real negative things that happen. So that's a that's a, a tremendous transition because I think that. You know, the, 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 the quest for information or the gathering of information continues in the United States. So talk a little bit, if you don't mind, Joe, about a topic we, we discussed together on another panel, the Corporate Transparency Act, because to me, that sounds like the next step, right, uh, in terms of the evolution of, of trying to gather as much information as, as possible. So first of all, if you could define it a bit and then maybe give your impressions of it, if you, that, I'd love, I think our listeners would be really interested in that. Thanks, David. Yeah, and I, I think once uh, the general public becomes aware of how far-reaching the requirements uh, will be under the Corporate Transparency Act, uh, there will be a, a loud outcry because it'll mean a substantial change uh, uh, in how we set up and maintain uh, corporations. And a lot of people are involved in that. Uh, and and it's today it's pretty simple. But moving forward, it's looking to be very onerous. And the question is whether or not this is going to be uh, or how much it's going to impact uh, small businesses. You know, like your average mom, pa store company, you know, they're running their company. And uh, if they can uh, keep up with the administrative burden of, of doing this stuff. Uh, but so the Corporate Transparency Act passed uh, back at the end of 2020. 2020 um, and basically was an effort, uh, to provide some transparency, uh, on the ownership of companies where most people realize today, if they wanted to set up a company, it's state by state, you know, how you can do it. Um, and a little bit of different rules, but in most States, it's pretty easy. In fact, in a lot of States, you can just do it yourself online by clicking a few things and paying a little bit of money. And there's no disclosure about, really who the owners of these companies are. Um, that system is a lot different than the way the way the rest of the world today works with regards to these companies. The places like in Europe and in the, the tax havens, the, uh, you know, Cayman or BVI or Singapore, there is a substantial due diligence with regards to anybody involved with these companies who the owners are, who control these companies. We want to know who the flesh and blood people are behind all these companies. Mm -hmm. So that's the rest of the world. The United States was not there. And this law, no surprise, finally came out and the United States is catching up. However, we do not yet have the infrastructure uh, for gathering this kind of information. And we're 
currently, or FinCEN actually, the, the government currently is trying to come up with a system by which this information can be gathered. Uh, and it's important information. It's, uh, you know, the, uh, the owners, their uh, personal information on uh, uh, identity, you know, whether it's their passport number or their driver's license number, their date of birth, where they live, you know, so mm-hmm. a lot of good, important personal information. Um, and who's going to collect this? Right now, it looks like it's going to have to be collected by all 50 states, you know, with their different systems. So you have a multinational company, you know, that's registered in these different states. <laughs> you might have 50 different ways of having to register. It's mm-hmm. not clear yet how that's going to work. Um, and and it's not just the owners. It's also the controllers, like the, the members of the board, all this information, and also the people that help to set up the companies, right? The the lawyers or the accountants, anybody who assists in the setup, that information also has to be included with this reporting. Um, and in addition, once it's set up, you know, uh, you, you've got the information. If along the way during the life of the company, the information changes, you've got 30 days to update the information or there's substantial penalties for not updating. And, you know, we're just not used to that. You know, it's going to be difficult, uh, the process for uh, how this information is going to be uh, fed in, who's going to hold on to it in a secure way so that it's uh, it's safe. Um, And it's not once right now we usually do the renewals for the companies once a year. We're talking about, you know, along the way you have to do the uh, the update, uh, which is going to be a very heavy administrative burden. Yeah. Well, let me draw a distinction and have you comment on this. So, so FACA, sort of the, the precursor, as you say, to CRS, and then I guess, you know, the, the Corporate Transparency Act has become sort of the purlier, I guess. But the point is, though, isn't there a distinction between, so far, between FACA and the Corporate Transparency Act and CRS with regard to who has access to the information? Or another way of saying it, I guess, who, who that information is shared with. And, and I guess the distinction I'm drawing out is, well, you know, CRS shares it worldwide with in and among 100 some countries around the world. But FATCA does not. Right, Joe? And, and nor I think the Corporate Transparency Act isn't talking about sharing that information outside of the United States. I think. Can you comment on that? OK, so starting off with uh, CRS, uh, that uh, is this, the information system set up by the OECD. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you know member uh, countries to that system uh, all kind of are on equal footing. Uh, they all have to collect in the same you know general way and share in uh, using the, that procedure uh, with the partners within the group, right? Uh, and they have to protect. There are obligations to protect the information and only use it for the people who need to have the information. So there are some safeguards in place with the CRS system. Um, FATCA is different in that um, the United States really has the substantial power in the system. The United States demands of everybody, all the other countries out there to find out if there are any U.S. people involved with uh, the, uh, the structures uh, directly or indirectly. So it could be a beneficiary of a trust or a protector, any of that stuff. Uh, the partners out there have to report that to the United States, you know, so the, the partners have to look at the, 
the physical, you know, uh, flesh and blood people behind the structure, whereas the United States did not have to look for the corresponding physical person behind the structure mm-hmm. that it was established in the United States because the United States didn't have that information, right? We, our banks, um, when they collect information uh, for who's opening up an account with a the bank, they get a WA uh, Ben. Uh, that is who the taxpayer is. It doesn't necessarily say who the, uh, the individual is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the IRS never had that information. So we couldn't promise to give it to other countries uh, through the FATCA system. So CRS was kind of an equal footing system. And FATCA was more, you know, uh, leaning towards benefit to the United States, but not so much for the the partners um, uh, of the FATCA system. Now we go to Corporate Transparency Act. This system is uh, actually probably the first step to the uh, U.S. finding out who the flesh and blood people are behind the U.S. companies. You know, forget about the... uh, foreign companies, that's a different thing. But this will be the first system by which the United States uh, gathers information of individuals behind structures. Um, And currently, how this law is adopted, the information is going to be collected and held by a division within the Department of Treasury called FinCEN. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually one of the things that FinCEN is still working on is the rules by which they will collect and hold in a secure manner this kind of information. And it is not to be shared, right? There's no provision. It's not a public register of beneficial owners. It's private just for purposes of the government authorities. Uh, However, it could be shared uh, if there is good reason from a partner country or from a state, right, that Mm -hmm. is for this information. Um, so I'm not sure if that responds to your question. No, it's perfectly responsive. And I think it's important for listeners and anybody, I think, operating in the international space to understand the nuances among and between these systems. And I think that was perfectly said. And that concludes part one of my interview with Joe Kellogg. Uh, stay tuned for part two as we get into uh, more technical issues around uh, information disclosure under CRS, FATCA, and the newly implemented or at least passed Corporate Transparency Act. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about some data leaks and know your customer procedures and jurisdiction selection, which is so vital to both the work that Joe does at WE and the work that we do at Bridgeford Trust Company. So thanks again for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for part two of Joe's interview. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. And for more information, you can visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.